From WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University, I'm Byron Williams, and this is The Public Morality. Today, on The Public Morality, I speak with Professors Doug Kreiner of Cornell University and Richard Pildes of NYU about congressional subpoena power and the separation of powers that's coming up on The Public Morality. Welcome to the Public Morality. We are involved in a national civics lesson that is cloaked in the shadows of impeachment. As much as there is a tendency to see these issues exclusively through the lens of the side one supports, there is a less convenient way by which these matters must be viewed. It is one through our democratic guardrails. By ignoring congressional subpoenas, flouting Congress's oversight authority, withholding documents, proclaiming members of the executive branch will not testify, it raises the question, is the executive branch, in effect, above the law? If the answer is no, what tools are Congress's expense to hold the executive branch accountable? Joining me to begin this conversation is Professor Doug Kreiner. Professor Kreiner teaches government at Cornell University. Professor Doug Kreiner, welcome to the Public Morality. Thanks so much for having me. Well, let's begin by having you offer an explanation of how congressional subpoenas work and what exactly is executive privilege. Sure. So congressional subpoenas are a way for Congress to get information from the executive branch uh, when the executive branch isn't so forthcoming. Uh, it's a critically important way for Congress to get the, the stuff that it's needed uh, to provide its, uh, to execute its oversight responsibilities uh, and to oversee what's going on within the executive and to shine a light on any allegations of abuse, misconduct, wrongdoing. Uh, executive privilege comes down to uh, an argument that there are certain aspects of executive branch communications uh, that Congress doesn't have a right to. Uh, And really, this comes down to the very question of, does Congress have the power to investigate the executive branch? Uh, If you were to look in the Constitution for it in Article I, you won't find it. Uh, And so the very first congressional investigation actually happened in the Washington administration, and they asked this question. Uh, James Madison actually was in the House. He voted for authorizing the investigation. President Washington was sitting in the, uh, in the White House and sort of thinking, uh, should we comply? Uh, and he said, yes, actually we should. Congress should have this power to oversee what we do. But there should be some communications that we shouldn't turn over uh, if they're required for secrecy for the executive branch to perform its functions. But fortunately, in this particular case, none of the things that Congress wants uh, should be covered by any sort of privilege, and so he turned over everything that the House had asked for. Uh, but there's always been, throughout American history, in the context of investigative politics, this push-pull between the Congress uh, and the White House over how much access Congress gets uh, versus the desire of the executive branch to keep some things in reserve. Mm. But, but you, you mentioned that um, 
that subpoena power is really not articulated in um, Article 1. But couldn't we also say the same about Article 2, that executive privilege is not fully articulated in Article 2? Would that be correct? That's right. Neither one is there, nor is the power of Congress to investigate the executive branch more broadly. Uh, Some uh, in the second Congress, 1792, when the Sinclair affair and investigation came about, uh, asked, isn't this a violation of separation of powers? And they worried about that. They ultimately decided, no, actually, it's checks and balances. And this is a critically important check and balance. Uh, But for that check and balance to work, Congress has got to have access to the information that is needed to actually conduct its oversight responsibilities. So subpoenas are going to be essential to forcing the executive branch to hand over the information that's required for Congress to do its job. Uh, So they've sort of developed that power, and the Supreme Court has recognized uh, the constitutionality of that power. Uh, In the same regard, uh, presidents have developed the idea of executive privilege, uh, and the Supreme Court has recognized that there are times when when presidents can exert executive privilege, but there's always that gray area in between. Uh, neither is absolute. So how do we figure out where the powers of Congress uh, to get the power or the information it needed to do its oversight uh, ends, and where does the executive's uh, privilege uh, for its communications begin? Now, now since uh, many of us don't have the uh, luxury of having uh, Professor Kreiner just explain these things to us, uh, to the outside observer, it would seem that ignoring a congressional subpoena would suggest, and at least in the case of the executive branch, is somehow above the law. How should we be looking at this? So there are certainly past precedents uh, of executive branch officials, even recent precedents of executive branch officials uh, choosing not to comply with congressional subpoenas. so to suggest that what we're seeing right now from the Trump administration is wholly unprecedented would be wrong. What is unprecedented is the Trump administration's blanket assertions of executive privilege and its direction of all executive branch officials sort of to uniformly, regardless of the merits uh, of the claims that Congress is articulating, to just reject all subpoenas and not to appear. That sort of constitutional hardball tactics that we're seeing from the administration is wholly unprecedented uh, and really is something new. And if it were to become the norm, uh, it goes much far beyond uh, the current politics over President Trump and even his removal, uh, potential removal from office, as uh, critically important as that might be. It really cuts to the very core of checks and balances and separation of powers. Mm. Uh, does it? Does an impeachment inquiry... Uh, expand congressional power and its ability to obtain information from the executive branch? And if so, how? It really should. So whenever you are with all of these sorts of claims, when Congress can credibly claim, look, we have a power and a right, constitutional duty or obligation even, to oversee what's going on in the executive, and we need to do that. And the president has claims, especially, I think, uh, with regard to communications with foreign leaders, uh, and also with his advisors, say, yeah, there, there are certain things that, uh, in the interest of the nation, really, it should be able to, I should be able to keep secret. Uh, we're talking about trade-offs. Uh, so the question is, how compelling is Congress's uh, in need uh, to, to get access to this information? So when courts have looked historically uh, at 
at Congress's subpoena power uh, and Congress's investigative power. Uh, it's always been sort of with reference to a legislative purpose. Uh, does Congress have a legislative purpose for issuing the subpoena, for launching the investigation, for using those sorts of oversight powers? Um, and courts have drawn that legislative purpose incredibly broadly. Uh, so, for instance, the fight over President Trump's tax returns. Um, as long as Congress sort of looking at historical precedent, as long as Congress can sort of credibly say, you know what, we're we're looking at tax laws, and you know, we're thinking about revising tax laws, and it would be really helpful to look at the president's tax returns to help guide our purpose. They're on relatively strong ground uh, historically for making that. Courts have given Congress very, very broad latitude. But when you're within the context of an impeachment inquiry, now we're talking about a core constitutional power and obligation of the House of Representatives. Uh, there's no ambiguity here uh, over, well, how connected is this to a core congressional function? This is the essence uh, of the ultimate constitutional check uh, that the House exerts and places on the presidency. Uh, and so I think it really puts uh, uh, Congress in the strongest constitutional position when arguing that its subpoenas, uh, its oversight and investigative powers need to be respected. If you're just joining us, I'm speaking with Cornell University government professor Doug Kreiner about congressional subpoena power and executive branch's uh, response to it. Uh, Professor Kreiner is also uh, author of the book Investigating the President, Congressional Checks on Presidential Power. So, Professor Kreiner, if the executive branch systematically ignores congressional subpoena power, as you alluded to earlier, do they have any recourse? So, yes and no. Um, ultimately, uh, they're sort of, for the most part, they're relying on courts. Uh, Congress can look for criminal contempt and uh, contempt and civil contempt, uh, and they can try to work their way uh, through the judicial process to have those uh, contempt uh, penalties enforced. Historically, those have taken years. Uh, very, very long periods of time, uh, such that it would essentially render, uh, their current inquiry, uh, and the impeachment inquiry to be moot. Uh, so judicial recourse is probably not going to help out, uh, congressional investigators within the current context. There is an older, uh, power, uh, the power of inherent contempt, uh, that Congress has used in which Congress can direct the sergeant of arms uh, to go out and arrest uh, a private citizen, such as perhaps uh, uh, Mr. Giuliani, uh, but even uh, an executive branch official, uh, for being in contempt of Congress. Uh, and they could hold that individual within the Capitol building uh, for violating uh, uh, the contempt charge and for, vi- or, excuse me, for violating the subpoena and for being in contempt of the House. Uh, that's something that courts uh, did indeed recognize uh, Congress's constitutional rights to do, in a series of rulings in the uh, in the early uh, nineteen uh, in the early twentieth century, in the early nineteen hundreds, um, it's something that Congress really hasn't done very much since I believe the nineteen thirties. Uh, so, it's an option. Uh, it would certainly be another type of constitutional hardball tactic should the House decide to fight fire with fire. Uh, but it would certainly be a, a, a pretty big break with recent precedent. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, as I recall, didn't not as I recall because I wasn't. It's not like I covered it, but as I recall, though, uh, uh, didn't Congress uh, use that power to to get the, uh, the the Attorney General? I think it was the Harding administration to get his the Attorney General's brother from like Cincinnati. They just you know it was like, yeah. and the court said that was fine. Yeah, the, the Teapot Dome scandal gives us uh, uh, some of the most important Supreme Court precedents. Uh, defining Congress's investigative power, uh, and it, it mainly involved uh, both. There are a series of cases that involved both private individuals and government officials who challenged uh, their contempt uh, uh, citations from Congress. Uh, that said that I, you know, I don't have to comply, and uh, Congress doesn't have the investigative power in this case. And in each case, the courts always ruled with Congress's power. Uh, and they articulated very broad um, uh, scope of investigative power for Congress. They said it's a, it's a core function of what Congress does. It's a core function for the legislature to provide within a separation of powers system. Uh, and courts have been very, uh, historically, have been very uh, much on Congress's side in these sorts of battles. Mm. How difficult is it for the legislative branch to fulfill, fulfill their responsibilities when the executive branch is uncooperative. And, and I'm, th- I'm thinking back, um, although this is not the executive branch and legislative branch, but I'm thinking back to um, Andrew Jackson after uh, Chief Justice Marshall rendered an opinion about Native Americans. And Andrew Jackson yeah. famously said, you know, Justice Marshall has rendered his opinion. Now let him enforce it. So how difficult really is it uh, for the legislative branch to fulfill its responsibilities when the executive branch is uncooperative? It's incredibly difficult. So uh, one of the advantages of investigations is that uh, investigations are easier for Congress to start than it is, say, for Congress to pass laws. Um, after all, laws can be blocked with filibusters by minorities. Laws can be blocked in periods of divided government. Uh, and, of course, laws can be vetoed by presidents wielding veto pens. Uh, investigations you know, are, are much easier. Um, but then how do investigations actually sort of translate into either pressure for new legislation uh, or generating political pressure that changes sort of the situation on the ground and the nature of the political environment, it really is about, uh, oftentimes, moving public opinion. Uh, and to do that, you have to be able to sort of shine a light uh, on alleged wrongdoing and administration abuses. The Teapot Dome scandal that you alluded to earlier is a fantastic example of that. Um, Watergate is all about, uh, you know, we've, we've seen that a lot, I think, in the current context. <laughs> People talking about where support for impeachment is today versus where it was at the similar stage within the Watergate inquiry, right? Um, opinion changed because of what investigations were able to do, the way in which they were able to generate publicity, the way they were able to bring these revelations to the fore, the way they changed the political uh, ground underneath actors' feet, and then it changed their behavior. Uh, all of that requires Congress having access to the information that's needed to be able to shine a light on these on these events, on these actions, on the doings of the administration. Uh, if they're unable to do that because the administration stonewalls, the administration obstructs, and it's allowed to succeed in that stonewalling and obstruction, then the investigative check uh, may be quite weak indeed. You know, you, you mentioned Watergate, and 
for for all the um, nefarious behavior, there was a line that at least it appeared that uh, Richard Nixon was unwilling to cross when it was time to turn over the tapes. Uh, What if this uh, president just remains obstinate all the way through, so he ignores the legislative branch, he ignores judiciary, it that I mean I know it's a it's a amorphous term, but that sounds like that would be a constitutional crisis and uh, a loophole that neither Madison Hamilton nor John Jay thought about when they crafted the Federalist Papers. I think that's right, um, and the only recourse that would be left at that point uh, would be for that sort of blanket obstruction to be incorporated into an article of impeachment. Uh, and for the impeachment power to be the ultimate remedy. Hmm. Uh, does public mood um, have any implication historically, especially on the legislative side, on the actions that they take in these matters? I think public opinion does indeed matter. So uh, in our research, we uh, we constructed a really long time series of <laughs> every congressional investigation of the executive branch, so not just the presidency, any actor within the executive branch, from 1898 through 2014. Um, and we have really good public opinion data from about the Eisenhower administration at that time through President Obama. And so one of the things that we did is we looked at uh, statistical models that tried to take into account the fact uh, that investigations might influence what people think about the president and also sort of the president's public standing might influence investigations. And we found some evidence uh, 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 that the causal arrow is running in both directions. So weak presidents uh, are more attractive targets for congressional investigators, uh, but the more intensely Congress investigates, especially if they do so uh, in a more sustained fashion month after month after month of sustained hearings that generate a lot of media coverage uh, tends to significantly erode public support for the president. Talking with Professor uh, Kreiner of uh, Cornell University, you talked about this earlier, and I'd like to have you expand on it, but talk about the long-term implications for the relationship between the executive and legislative branches if President Trump is allowed to sort of have this ubiquitous um, ignoring of con- congressional subpoenas because because it's not it's, it's not just this uh, impeachment inquiry we've had this behavior right. throughout his administration. So uh, that's a great question, and I, I think it sort of keeps our eye on the ball here that the impeachment inquiry and the immediate politics are really important, uh, but the broader question of what this means for the future of separation of powers and checks and balances, I think, is, is even more pressing. Um, so if you don't mind, let me digress for 30 seconds on a little, a little history detour. So um, in 1973, Arthur Schlesinger, Jr., the great historian, wrote a book called The Imperial Presidency. And he warned that under Johnson and Nixon in particular, uh, presidential power had grown to such an extent uh, that the presidency had assumed ver- virtually imperial powers. One year after that book's published, the imperial president's toppled. Nixon's gone, right? And how did it happen? Because of an, invest- of a, of an investigation. An investigation uncovered allegations, it exposed them, it shined a light on them, uh, and Nixon was ultimately forced from office. Uh, shortly thereafter, Schlesinger writes that the power of an investigation may be 
central to the very future uh, of checks and balances in this country. Uh, he writes that it could be the key to whether or not Madison's vision in Federalist 51 uh, of checks and balances and ambition being made to counteract ambition uh, actually will still succeed uh, in contemporary American politics. Central to that idea, though, picking up on our theme, is Congress has to be able to shine a light uh, on alleged wrongdoing. Uh, if it can't, uh, if it's not able to, to highlight that, to make it public, and to sway public opinion and really enlist public opinion and popular demands for change uh, as part and parcel of its effort to do battle with the executive branch in the public sphere, then the investigative power will be significantly weakened and maybe no stronger than many of the other formal checks uh, that the imperial presidencies uh, of the mid-20th century had run roughshod over. Uh, and so I think the real danger here uh, is if the administration does indeed stick to its course, uh, refuses to comply, uh, and it pays wholesale, and it pays no consequence for it, and in so doing establishes a precedent that future administrations can ignore Congress's investigative powers uh, with carte blanche, uh, that it could have really serious implications for the future of checks and balances in this country. Professor Doug Kreiner, Cornell University, I want to thank you, sir, for joining me today on The Public Morality. That was Doug Kreiner of Cornell University. Stay tuned as we continue our conversation about congressional subpoenas and separation of powers with NYU law professor Richard Pildes on The Public Morality. Welcome back. To continue our discussion on congressional subpoenas and the separation of powers, I'm joined by Professor Richard Pildes. Professor Pildes teaches constitutional law at NYU and was a former law clerk for Supreme Court Justice Thurgood Marshall. Professor Richard Pildes, welcome to The Public Morality. Thank you very much for having me. One of your areas of focus are legal issues that affect democracy what are the legal issues that could potentially threaten America's democratic republic? And I'm, I'm, I'm speaking specifically with the, uh, the, the congressional subpoenas and the president's uh, decision to ignore them. Well, if we just focus on these particular conflicts, because obviously there are a lot of issues about democracy that we worry about uh, today, but speaking about the conflicts between Congress and the president right now, uh, so no president... Uh, in history has defied Congress to the extent that President Trump is currently doing so. Um, and the question are how, is how these conflicts are going to be resolved. You know, we have a mechanism for resolving these disputes. They, they certainly do happen and have happened before, just not in as sweeping terms as the president has sort of staked out here. Um, and the mechanism of resolution is that these issues go to the courts uh, in terms of whether subpoenas are being complied with or not. 
Um, and, uh, and, and the courts will resolve questions about whether the subpoenas have been validly issued, whether certain documents have to be provided, whether certain witnesses have to testify or have immunity. Uh, and we don't reach a, a, what I would call a constitutional crisis uh, unless we get to the point that the White House actually refuses to comply with orders from the courts. Because at the end of the day, that's what the rule of law means. It means that uh, when the courts reach final judgments about what the law requires, everybody has to comply. Um, so, so we have these conflicts. If they get resolved in the normal way and ultimately both sides, Congress and the White House, comply with the court's decisions, then that's a conflict, but it's not what I would call a crisis. Well, since, since you mentioned it, um, how are you defining uh, constitutional crisis? Because that term is often tossed around in public discourse, usually without people having uh, the burden of defining what they mean. So how, what is a constitutional crisis right. in your perspective? You no, know, exactly. I, I agree with you. We, have, we hear lots of rhetoric about constitutional crisis. Um, I think it's certainly the case right now that we have a confrontation, I would say, of a very high magnitude constitutionally between the Congress and the White House or between the House and the White House. No question these are high stakes. No question these are major, serious constitutional issues. But in my view, we don't have a crisis uh, if these issues get worked out and resolved in the way that they're supposed to get worked out and resolved, which is through the judicial branch. Uh, now, in my view, a crisis occurs if the rule of law itself is threatened. And, and what that means to me is if some actor like the White House, the president, refuses to comply with a court order that certain documents or certain witnesses be provided to Congress. That's a real crisis because now we have uh, the president define what the rule of law requires um, and where we go from that moment, if we ever get to that moment, is very uh, concerning and very troubling, and we have not faced that moment in modern constitutional history. You know, even President Nixon, um, if I can remind your listeners about the last time we had uh, an impeachment inquiry of, of, of this magnitude, obviously we had the Clinton impeachment inquiry, uh, but Nixon was forced to resign. Uh, and in the Nixon case, the Supreme Court ordered him to turn over the, the, the White House recordings, the tapes that he had secretly made. President Nixon complied with the Supreme Court order to do that, even though he knew almost to a certainty that by doing that, he would be forced out of the White House, which he was very shortly after releasing the tapes. So, you know, even President Nixon in this very high magnitude confrontation ultimately complied with the court's orders. And that's why the rule of law was preserved. Uh, so that's what I would say is, is the issue to look at, look at here. As long as the court orders are complied with, I would say we have a confrontation of a very high constitutional order, but but not something that I would call a genuine crisis. And following up on that, sir, uh, what could you also explain the difference in this case between talking about the actions of President Donald Trump vis-a-vis -vis the office of the president? Well, you know, the presidency is an interesting institution in this respect because it's the only institution we have that's headed by a single person. So the judicial branch is headed by the nine-member Supreme Court. You know, the Congress and the House, the Senate, they have, uh, it's a multiple-member body. 
one of the most important decisions that the framers of the Constitution made that people don't really think about because we take it for granted today is that they debated whether to have a multi-headed chief executive, like a three-person council, or a single person as president. Um, and they decided, rightly in my view, that it was better to have a single person as the head of the executive branch because you'd get more decisive and effective action, and that's what you wanted from the office of the president. The problem is it gets very hard to separate the person who's occupying the office at any one moment in time from the presidency as an institution. And we have a lot of conflicts uh, that sort of turn on that uh, sort of somewhat puzzling situation. So for example, the president has a lawyer in the White House called the White House Counsel. But it's clear that the White House Counsel is not the president's personal lawyer. Uh, the White House Counsel is there to represent the presidency as an institution. Even though the current president chooses the counsel, the counsel is very loyal to the current president. But you know, ultimately, the White House counsel's obligation is to the office. So for example, there's no attorney-client privilege that the president has with the White House counsel because the White House counsel is not his personal lawyer. So um, this is a, a, an ongoing tension that exists because the presidency is a single person. Uh, but ultimately, as a legal matter, when we get into these issues, uh, we are talking about the institution of the presidency and not the particular person who happens to occupy it. And now, now, can Congress take action against those within the administration, I'm talking about this particular administration, that have, for whatever reason, decided not to comply with, with the subpoena? Yes. So this does bring out uh, what I think is uh, a bit of a, uh, a, a, not just a bit, but maybe a serious defect in the way our current uh, structure for resolving these issues works. So if an executive official refuses to comply with a subpoena, Congress can hold that person in contempt of Congress. Uh, and then the question becomes, what follows from that? And it's a criminal offense, but Congress the main route Congress has for enforcing its subpoenas is by going to the U.S. attorney uh, and telling the U.S. attorney through a formal process, you should prosecute this person for criminal contempt. Now, if that person is a high-level executive official, the attorney general may say, we're not going to go out. We don't believe that this should be a prosecution, prosecutable offense. Um, and this is a problem that we run into. How can Congress enforce its legitimate constitutional powers to conduct investigations, uh, to look into matters involving potential legislation, even to conduct an impeachment inquiry, if it doesn't have an effective enforcement mechanism for enforcing its subpoenas. And it has to depend on the very executive branch that it's investigating to enforce its contempt citations. And that's a, that's a problem. Um, and in particular, the executive branch always has an incentive to stonewall and to try to drag the process out because once a congressional session ends, those subpoenas end also. Uh, so one proposal people have made over the years, and there are a number of different kinds of proposals uh, for addressing this problem is, for example, uh, that Congress could pass a statute uh, creating a special counsel to prosecute criminal contempt citations against 
executive branch officials or against high level executive branch officials. Um, and the idea there would be similar to the uh, uh, special counsel that we have, we just went through with the Robert Mueller investigation. The idea would be we need uh, prosecutorial officials who are independent of the current executive branch, not beholden to the attorney general ultimately, who in our system is a political appointee, uh, but that if Congress passed legislation saying when we issue a criminal contempt citation, uh, a special counsel will be appointed, uh, we can talk about you know who might do the appointment, who will prosecute those criminal contempts. Um, and that would be a way around this real problem that we do know uh, or have learned more about in the last couple of decades of uh, Congress not having an effective way to enforce its subpoenas, even when someone has committed a crime by engaging in criminal contempt of Congress. Well, in the scenario you, you just painted, isn't that in effect the administration investigating itself? Just well, I would say it's the administration being asked to prosecute itself. Okay. Okay. Right. Okay. Uh, so, so Congress is doing the investigation, um, and then to to make its investigation effective, you know, it issues these subpoenas, and then the subpoenas are not complied with, and then it issues criminal contempt uh, orders or, or or certifications, basically, as they're called, and then nothing happens. Um, and and that's uh, I think that's a defect in the way the system currently uh, functions. Um, and as I say, scholars have proposed solutions to this problem over the years. Congress hasn't taken them up. Uh, maybe depending on how issues get resolved, you know, in the current controversies, maybe Congress will consider taking some of these issues up if these issues don't get worked out in a way that's uh, protective of Congress's legitimate functions. If you're just joining us, I'm speaking with uh, Professor Richard Pildes, uh, NYU law professor, and we're discussing congressional subpoena power, uh, specifically uh, the recent actions by uh, the Trump administration to ignore congressional subpoenas. Uh, Professor Pildes, from the Declaration uh, of Independence to the Federalist Papers to the Constitution, in my view, there's always been an implied assumption that the key to the success for our republic, uh, well, to, I guess the key to success for any for any democratic republic is the desire for it to work. So, therefore, if someone says, as Andrew Jackson said, Justice Marshall has you know made his decision, let him enforce it, right. that really just gums up the works. And I wondered, uh, how do you see that? Am I, you know. Yeah, so that's a nice example because early in the Supreme Court's history, before it had really established its credibility as an institution for a broad public, um, the court was a weaker institution. And uh, not only did Andrew Jackson make the statement, or there's a debate about whether he really made it, but you know, it reflects a certain attitude. Well, it's great for our conversation that he made it, so go ahead. Right, right, exactly, <laughs> right, that's right. And, and, and also, you know, um, back when uh, the southern states engaged in massive disenfranchisement of uh, black voters in the late 19th, early 20th century, after Congress, after the Constitution had been amended to guarantee that the right to vote would not be denied on racial grounds, that's the 15th Amendment. Basically, the southern states did it anyway, 
And the Supreme Court, when it was asked to enforce the 15th Amendment, said, essentially, we don't have the power to do this. Um, you're asking us to take on the whole political structure of the South. Um, we don't have this power. Now, it's kind of a shocking when I teach this to my students. They're always shocked to see a Supreme, the Supreme Court saying something like that. But by the modern era, uh, and certainly the, you know, most of the 20th century and by today, the Supreme Court has established itself as a legitimate institution. Uh, there's an expectation that its orders are going to be complied with. The best example of this is what we talked about a moment ago, which is that President Nixon, when the Supreme Court told him you must turn over the White House tapes, uh, complied with that order, even though he knew how devastating complying would be for him personally. Um, and we have not had the Supreme Court uh, defied uh, in the way that Andrew Jackson's comment uh, suggested he was willing to do back in, uh, in that era. Now, hopefully, we don't get to that point um, in the current, you know, current controversies. That uh, when the courts start reaching final decisions, especially the higher-level courts, uh, I uh, hope and assume that uh, most of the actors or the actors given orders will comply with those orders. Um, they may not have to issue orders to the president because these these may be orders to lower-level, I mean, high-level officials below the president. Uh, uh, that you must testify, and I assume those people will testify at that point, uh, because otherwise they will be engaged in criminal behavior, they will be defying the orders of the courts, they can be disbarred if they're lawyers, there are a variety of sanctions that can be brought to bear. Uh, so uh, uh, this is not about President Trump alone, because the president can't really act by himself. He, ha he needs you know, an apparatus. He needs other actors to follow his orders. And once the courts get involved uh, and issue final decisions, I, I certainly uh, hope that those orders are complied with. As I say, if they are not, then then we then really we have a huge crisis at that point because now the rule of law is not being enforced. Um, so I hope we don't get to that point. We're not at that point yet, um, and the court is. Uh, uh, broadly respected as the institution that resolved these kind of conflicts. Um, and I think public opinion uh, would, uh, for the most part, rally behind the court when the court issues a, a final decision. Uh, and, and I know, you know, the, 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 the legal aspects that affect democracy is, is, a, is a, one of your areas of focus. So are, are you concerned, or how concerned are you, let me put it that way, that we could be this nation with a democratic exterior, but a soft authoritarian underbelly. Are we are we close to that? Or are you concerned about that? Or are we still not well, not to worry? Um, I you know I, the first thought that occurs to me is that Yogi Berra line about the problem with trying to predict the future is uh, predictions about the future are very hard, something like that. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I think there's no question that President Trump, um, you know, has certainly pushed the boundaries to the limit or maybe beyond the limit in a variety of areas, uh, both res respect to longstanding kind of norms of how American government works um, and even issues that implicate kind of legal boundaries. Um, but, um, you know, I think that up till now, at least, I see the American system as having been quite resilient 
the other institutions. The courts have been uh, very independent. Uh, the courts have uh, invalidated numerous actions of the administration, not all of the actions that everyone wants them to, not everyone, that, I mean, the critics of the administration want the courts to, to invalidate. But, you know, many of those actions, uh, Congress, uh, especially now that um, you don't have one party control of Congress, so that the White House and the House are in conflict and the House has investigative powers and is obviously actively using them. Um, the press as another institution has certainly been, you know, very active um, in breaking stories about how the administration functions. Um, so, uh, uh, you know, I can't say what the future holds. I do think President Trump is putting the system under uh, a kind of test that it hasn't faced before um, and certainly not in the modern era. Um, and there are reasons to be concerned, but there are also reasons to see the, the strength right now of, of, of other parts of the system, including uh, the professionals in government who are uh, in many cases um, uh, doing what they're supposed to be doing, um, speaking up when they see uh, things that they believe are illegal going on. Um, so. I don't know if that's a clear bottom line. I don't have a clear bottom line, I suppose. As I say, the system's under greater test than we've experienced in our lifetime, certainly. Uh, but I think so far, uh, uh, the other institutions are uh, mostly performing the role uh, that we hope them hope they would perform. Now, there's you know there's debates about the Senate and the Republicans in the Senate, and you know we'll see how that goes as more information comes out during these investigations. Well, sir, one of the great things about when you come on the public morality, circumspection is still a, a valued principle here. You can nuance, you can be in, <laughs> you can be in the gray. There's there's no burden on you to to be certain. How about that? <laughs> well, I that's that's exactly the reason I was very uh, happy when you invited me to come on and speak because it's so hard in our current political culture, where everything is one minute sound bites or thirty second sound bites. And everything is so polemical and partisan, and it's wonderful to have a program where people can have a conversation like this with you over an extended period of time and actually get to sort of deeper levels and not be pushed into a corner, you know, in simplistic terms. So I, I appreciate that. Well, and respect well, that well before we let you go, I'll just share a story with you that uh, Corey Brett Schneider from Brown University shared with me. He, he went on Morning Joe. Not, I'm, not, I'm not haranguing Morning Joe, but I'm, <laughs> I'm getting to your point, though, about the sound bites. He goes on Morning Joe, and he has three minutes to explain the Mueller report. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's what our culture has become. Um, and it's, uh, you know, it's, it's driven by cable television. It's driven by Twitter. It's driven by blogs. And as, a, a, you know, someone who studies these legal issues, uh, you know, it, it's very, very frustrating um, how shallow the public discussion, including by experts, uh, who will go on and in 30 seconds give you a soundbite about something that uh, you can't possibly say anything intelligent and meaningful to an audience about in 30 seconds. Professor Richard Pildes, NYU Law School, thank you, sir, for, for joining us today on The Public Morality. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at Byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. Our archived broadcasts are located 
at soundcloud.com. Just search for Public Morality. You can also find us on iTunes. And my new book, Solitaire, is available on paperback and Kindle on Amazon. The Public Morality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at the Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams. Uh-huh.